just before we start, we all know that there's a problem in academia with people not getting paid for the work they're doing, particularly younger scholars. We at the project want to be part of the solution and not part of the problem. So we need your help to do that. If you can afford to donate one pound a month to support this project and keep it free forever, please go to our Patreon page at patreon.com backslash project RS and sign up there. If you want to make a one-off donation, you can do that too through our PayPal button on the homepage. But together we can help to change the culture of exploitation in academia. That's patreon.com backslash project RS. Now here's the episode. It's Monday. That can mean only one thing. Time to go back to work. Oh no, wait, two things. Religious Studies Project Day. I'm David Robertson. I'm Christopher Cotter, and we're giving away our hegemonic context there by saying, what happens on Mondays? Who knows what happens on Mondays, David? Who yeah. knows? Dude? Well, uh, a lot of presumptions there. In catering, they call Monday the catering weekend because they've been working hard all weekend and then they get their day off on Monday. Fantastic. And everybody, well, a sizable proportion, but not everybody goes to work. That's true. That is true. Whether you're uh, sleeping off a hangover or whether you're at work or conceivably both, we're the Religious Studies Project. We're here for you. We are indeed. And we are brought to you as ever by the British Association for the Study of Religions, the North American Association for the Study of Religion, and the International Association for the History of Religions. Big shout out to those guys. Thanks so much. This week, we've got an interview that Sammy Bishop recorded for us at the BSA Sockrell conference back over the summer. She recorded it with James Spickard on alternative sociologies of religion through non-Western eyes. And I'm really looking forward to this interview. Shall we hand straight over to Sammy? Bless. Hi, I'm Sammy Bishop. I'm here with the RSP at Sockrell 2017. I'm here with Professor James Spickard from the University of Redlands. So thank you for joining us today. Well, sure. Great. So we're here to talk about your newest publication, Alternative Sociologies Through Non-Western Eyes. Mm-hmm. Uh, could you tell us first a little bit about how you came to work on this topic? Well, it, every project, project is complex. And like every other scholar in the world, I'm in the midst of a series of conversations with various folks. Um, I'm, I technically have a religious studies degree, but I'm trained in anthropology and sociology. And I, one of those few people who don't, that doesn't make a distinction between them except historically. So, I'm very primed to, I'm prime, a theorist, I'm primed to look and see what the underlying presumptions are of any way of understanding whatever the phenomenon is. And since I'm studying religion um, and growing in the American context, uh, I've been reasonably appalled at the kinds of things that the American context can't seem to understand. Uh, the first one of those that came up came up during the 90s with the, with the inability of American sociology of religion to actually grasp experience in religious settings. Uh, I did my first field work on one of the new Japanese religions where the uh, practitioners tried to do something called Jorei, which, in, you know, crudely put, it involves uh, projecting invisible light out of the palms of people's hands to clean the clouds off their spiritual bodies. 
And you can imagine why an anthropologist would be interested in this. And, mm-hmm. and I learned all sorts of wonderful anthropological things about it. But, and frankly, I don't much care what Joe Ray was, but it was the thing that attracted everybody. And the discipline of sociology of religion said, oh, no, 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 that can't be possible. That can't be right. You know, something else must be going on. There must be, you know, the deprivation hypothesis or something like that. Crap. <laughs> um, and so it wasn't until a couple of folks did a survey where they asked a bunch of people involved with Asian religions, why are you attracted to it? And it wasn't the social life, and it wasn't the connection with other people, and it wasn't deprivation. It was, you know, hey, dude, something happens when we're sitting in meditation. And the, the, the discipline had no concepts for dealing with that. So Barry Joe Knights and I wrote a couple of articles about that and put together a series of, of uh, uh, ways of thinking about that. And I ended up working on um, uh, some pieces based in Navajo religion, where you don't have churches, you don't have priests, you've got myths, you've got belief systems, but there aren't doctrines. And But you've got these nine day and night ceremonies, and they're, they were trapped typed as symbolic, but they're not symbolic. I mean, why would you do something symbol, symbolism for nine days a night? It's based on the experience. It picks people up in one place and moves them and puts them to someplace else. That, you know, one thing leads to another there. And I began working um, on Confucian ways of seeing you know, what, what's sacred in the Confucian tradition? I was doing stuff on human rights and, and um, on the notion of, uh, I encountered the Confucian notion of human rights, which is a very different notion than in the West, and trying to get at that from, uh, from the inside. And came up, they really uh, followed a series of neo, contemporary Neo-Confucians into this notion of the relation self. And the self is constructed quite differently in Confucianism than it is in the West. And the sacred relationships, uh, I mean, it really is all about relationships, and the sacred inheres in the, the connections between people and the practice, uh, the maintenance of li, which is, we call ritual propriety, but it's, it's main, the, the, the maintenance of the relationships that, that create the self and create the social community generates virtue, but virtue is an individual virtue. Virtue is collective. So it's a whole different way of thinking about things. And so I got these two things going on. And then I got interested in the work of Ibn Khaldun, that you know, 19th or the 14th century Arab jurist, who has a way of, he thinks about a concept called alasabiya or group feeling, and it's a form of social solidarity that is center centripetal. It's it's draws things to the center rather than be bang, being boundary oriented. But he treats that he treats that alasabiya as something that is generated by kinship, but also by Islam. And so you know, I've got these three things. Well, what do I do with this stuff? And and. It struck me that there was a there was a there was a narrative here. Mm-hmm. There's a um, you know, where well where I end up, and I think the under underlying place of this book is that those are the three examples, but they're not exhaustive. 
the argument is that all of our concepts, including Western concepts and Western sociological concepts, are historically culturally grounded. That is, they arise out of a particular type, time and place. And uh, reading Manuel Vasquez's article uh, in uh, Religions on the Edge, which is the theme of this book, book that generated the theme of this conference, um, Vasquez points out the way in which in sociology's origins, sociology treated religion as the other, and so secularization approaches are built into sociology from the very beginning. And that was more articulate than I'd been able to get at it. And so you have the beginning of a narrative. Mm-hmm. And I had already studied America, really how religion is presented in American sociology textbooks. And it is all about belief and organizations and morality. And it's all, it's isolated in its own chapter, uh, just as sociology religion is isolated in the discipline as a large, at that large. So what was the default view? What is that? How was it created? How is it an historical cultural product that then lets us see certain things really, really well? but not see other things, mm. not see experience, not see relationship, etc. So that's the opening of the book. Uh-huh. And then there's a chapter there where I dive deep. I, I love writing this stuff because you actually get to dive deeply into things and read everybody in the world and dive into the Confucian material. And then I take that, and I, and as you've read in that chapter on uh, uh, where I apply it, you know, what would a Confucian sociologist see about American church life, or church life in Europe? But but I'm dealing with the American case here. What would the sociologist see that we don't normally see? Mm. And the Confucian case is probably the most striking. That that. Despite the patriarchalism of Chinese religion and of Chinese culture in general, that's also who maintains the sacred relationships that keep the congregation together. It's the women cooking the church suppers, it doing or as in the black the African American church, it's called kitchen ministry. They've got a name for it, and it isn't always women, just women in African American churches. And Midwestern Protestantism. It's the uh, it is all women, and there's a long history of church suppers as forming the basis of the social church uh, in um, San Antonio on the west side of San Antonio, which is a Latina area. It's, it's uh, people are nominally Catholic, but people don't really attend church very often. Uh, but there are women who will put on uh, uh, Christmas plays. And they will, they will, uh, do what they call a promesa, which is, you know, if your nephew gets off drugs or something like that, I will, you promise, uh, El Nino Dios that I will do one of these plays and then she'll feed the neighborhood and the play people, the, the, uh, the actors come and they do the pastoral play of the, you know, the shepherds and Jesus. And it's a religious event, but it never ha- doesn't happen in church. And so these women, are not counted as religious in American, you know, quantitative sociology. They're just not. We miss all of this richness because uh, we we don't put, see it. And so the relational notion empirically wouldn't necessarily put women at the center, but it empirically puts them at the center, which is this lovely irony. And and in, in sociology doesn't do that. Sociology ignores the role of women 
by and large. Mm-hmm. So, you know, then there's two chapters on, on Ibn Khaldun and two chapters on, on what the Navajo or uh, what you would do with a Navajo approach. And you know, one of them outlines what the Navajo had to do, uh, how, how Navajo philosophy works and the notion of ritual is uh, creating the original beauty order. It's a hozo is the term creating the beauty of order, etc. that that was the, the present at the creation. And at the creation, it was done in the myth by thought and speech. Long life boy and happiness girl who take out this, this bundle and they unroll the bundle and they do the sand painting. And that's what happens in a ceremony. They unroll the bundle, they do the sand painting, they recreate the original perfection. And people experience that connection. So then I take that and apply it and this was an, actually an article I'd written in 2005 based on 13 years of field work with a radical Catholic group that, that, that you can read the house mass that that group does every week or did at that time every week as a way of creating a, recreating the world, a sense of rightness, a sense of beauty and order, um, in the lives of people who spend their time working with homeless folks. Or, you know, sitting in at the cathedral because the bishop isn't spending enough money on poor people. Um, or sitting in at city hall so that they will release porta potties so that the, you know, the, the poor people don't have to, you know, put their stuff all over the street. Those are, how do you recreate that world? Well, it's the ritual that does it. And, and we are, there's other things too, but the overall argument is that if we go to these other places and take a look at what other concepts are there, it's like if you're a photographer, and I'm a photographer, so I, the, 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 you hold the camera, you point the camera at something, you frame it based on, you know, you take a photo, you get something, you see something. If you take 20 steps around to your right or left and take a picture you'll see something else. And so what I'm advocating is that there, if we look at these other cultural settings, these other historical cultural places, we can get notions. We can, we can locate our camera in different places. Um, the three I happen to choose are ones, I mean, there are others. I suggest some in the last chapter, but I can only handle three. Mm-hmm. That's, that's, it's, from the first article that dealt with this, some of this stuff to now, I think it's, well, it's been 28 years. Mm. No, 26 years, uh, which is a long time. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> but the project really is only, the project really only gelled in, about, about uh, 11 years ago. Mm. Mm. So. Anyway, that's a long answer to a short question. And, you know, right. <laughs> um, where, where do you want to go next? Well, one thing that we could ask would be why you chose to, or why you prefer to um, go to these other perspectives, such as the Navajo or the uh, mm-hmm. Chinese Confucian perspective, rather than looking for uh, relational theories kind of closer to home. Well, you can get there by going closer to home. And when I first looked at experience, wrote the first set of articles on experience, I went two places. One to the work of Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi, who's an American sociologist, well, Hungarian, but but Hungarian-American psychologist, who looks at um, the phenomenon of attention. 
and how when you attend to something deeply, uh, the ego shifts and the folk there, the experience of the ego, in that strict Husserlian phenomenological sense, the experience that you have of the world changes. And I went to that and I went to, um, uh, the work of Alfred Schutz, particularly the, uh, his article on making music together. And Mary Jo Knights and I wrote a piece on that, um, coming out of feminist theory and my coming out of whatever it is I come out of. But, but we're fellow travelers on this particular trip. And those were spots in the Western tradition where we could find it. And Schutz basically argues, and I think he's right, when you listen to music, it's a polythetic experience. That is, there are multiple things happening. It unrolls in time. And rituals un- unroll in time. Rich- you can't grasp a ritual just like you can't grasp in a symphony in a set of words. But you have to play it again. And if you don't play it again, then you lose something. And putting the two, Chicks and the Holly and, and uh, Schutz together, it, one of the things rituals does is it is focuses our attention in different places. And how well you know the ritual, it, uh, uh, Chicks and Molly talks about the distinction between the difference between anxiety and boredom. You're, if you know it too well, you're bored. If you aren't, no, don't, don't well at all, you're anxious. If you're exactly on the right spot, then your experience transforms. And so I'm using that. I'm using that to look at Navajo ritual, but I'm also using the Navajo theology to look at the Catholic ritual because of what, what does it accomplish? It, 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 it writes the world again. It puts the world back in order. And I think that's, that's significant. Sure, you can get there in another way. Nobody has. Mm. Sure, you don't have to go to China to find out about relationalism. Nobody's done it. And my complaint, my criticism, and I said this in my review of the book Religion on the Edge, is that people are laying out all of these uh, critiques of standard sociology. And then what they put in their place are really not very good understandings of symbolic interactionism, not even going to Mead's philosophy of the act, where there really is some good stuff, but going to Going back to Goffman, going to things that don't actually produce anything new. So the wish is fine, but there's no delivery. Um, if you go, it's like traveling. You go someplace else, you know, here I'm, I'm sitting, an American sitting at a British conference. People think differently. I mean, you know, what are two countries divided by the same language? Um, that's not my line. <laughs> it's probably Churchill. I don't know who it is. Um, and, but you, you begin to see things in a different way. Uh, and so I think it's important, for example, to go and read Ibn Khaldun, uh, even though we don't have a cyclical, I didn't go to his cyclical notion of history. Um, and, you know, Brian Turner at one point wrote that the problem with Khaldun is he has no theory of modernization. Well, that's right. But that isn't where you go in this case. What, what are the concepts that work? And then realizing, and we think of him as a historian, he thought himself as a, as a, as a, as a judge in the Islamic tradition. He was trying to, yeah, justify Islam and a particular kind of anti-Sufi Islam, which we might call Islamism today, based on the ability of that Islam to overcome 
kin divisions and create a larger community that where people are tied together by group feeling. Well, those are really interesting ideas. What do they illumine about a particular case that we wouldn't otherwise see? In that case, uh, since I haven't described that one yet, um, I go to uh, the I uh, look at the, I use that lens to look at the miracles of Medjugorje in Bosnia, the Marian apparition in Bosnia in 1981 and ongoing, and that was in the sociological liter- literature as a religious experience and as a religious event. And of course it was. And then 10 years later, they have this ethnic war in that place, which is then described as an ethnic experience and an ethnic event, which of course it was. What's the relationship between the two of these? Is religion creating social solidarity, which then becomes tied up with the ethnic line, because you can't tell a Croat from a Serb unless you ask them, or a Bosniak, unless you ask them what prayers they learned as a child. Is it an instrumental way of killing people? And in that case, I actually decide that Ibn Khaldun doesn't do it right, because he has this center-focused notion of solidarity as pulling people together. And the war makes it very clear that this was an edge-focused way of dividing people. But we still learn something by putting ethnicity and religion in the same frame, where they do not appear in standard sociology. Hmm. Could we get there? Sure we could get there. Nobody's done it. I mean, it standardly isn't done. And so that's why I did this. Now, there's a, that's reason one. There's reason two, which is my previous, my first, my previous book, I write slowly, uh, is on ethnography and particularly on reflexive ethnography in the study of religion, and it brought some of the material from anthropology into sociology and into religious studies about the notion of how ethnographers need to be aware of their own position in the process of doing their ethnography. And there's one of the articles in there has uh, eight different levels of representation in the ethnographic process, and after it published, I didn't write that one, but it's a brilliant piece by Sean Landris. Uh, I discovered there's a ninth. But, you know, these are the kinds of things we have to think about. Ethnography is now sort of de rigueur that it's reflexive. We are not in the historical cultural position of late 19th century France and Germany and the United States. We're in this sort of emerging global world where there are connections all over the place. It's it's after colonialism, but it's not post-colonial. And that's particularly true because the post-colonial people are still doing anti-colonialism, you know, effectively. But we're in a world where we have to begin thinking about it as not a unipolar world. And there's a long history in, in sociology, not just American, and in anthropology as well. We make the concepts. We export the concepts. Folks in other places apply those to their own situations and frequently misunderstand what's going on. Not their fault. Uh, and there's been a counter push to, okay, how do you develop indigenous sociologies and so on? And the ISA has sponsored a few of those. Some of them are worthwhile, some of them are not. 
But we're not in a world, we're in a world where we're beginning to have to talk to one another and learn from one another and so on. And so the, the, the second reason for going elsewhere is to remind ourselves that, you know, we're not the center of the universe. Uh, probably my favorite line in the book is the line that in that the second line in the last chapter where, you know, only men are allowed to imagine that there's no such thing as gender. Only white people are allowed to imagine that there's no such thing as race. Only heterosexuals are allowed to imagine that there is no such, that there's only, that there are not these wonderful and glorious and multiple forms of sexuality. And only people living at the center of the empire can imagine the empire doesn't matter. So that's, that's where we are. You know, and here I am, a white male heterosexual uh, inhabitant of the empire. Um, and I can't forget that. And so what are the responsibilities of, you know, how do we, how do we move from that polarity to something where we are all, um, at least in conversation with another? And I spend the last couple of chapters wrestling with that, wrestling with the questions of Orientalism and the questions of cultural appropriation, uh, the questions of what a, what, what are the, is the epistemological grounding of, um, really of what a global sociology would be. And my first title for the book, the one I sent it to the publisher with, was toward, uh, was through non-Western eyes towards a world conscious sociology of, of, of religion. And in many ways, that's the best description of what the book is about. The marketing department, of course, said, nope, can't do that. We want global sociology. I said, no, no, that's white male, blah, 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 blah. And so we fought for a month and two months, and then the editor came up with the title we have. I received the copy of the book the day after Alternative Facts became American political meme. <laughs> and I, part of me said, oh, my God. And the other part of me said, instant karma for the marketing department. <laughs> and yet it also does describe what's going on. Because it's not saying these are the only ways to do things, but these are three models of what we could be doing. Uh, and there's, you know, uh, the late Otto Maduro was dealing with a concept, a Nahuatl concept of Texcalopate, uh, having to do with, with, uh, Latino religious agency. And, um, uh, Nigerian Professor Akewowo Ake was dealing with some Yoruba concepts. And there's some other people who've pursued these. They're, they're great. They're beyond me. I mean, I, I can't dive into all of those. I'd be doing this for, you know, the next 40 lifetimes. Mm -hmm. But the stuff is out there. Some of it's good. Some of it is. Some of it works. Some of it doesn't. Some of the stuff that I think works might not work as well as, you know, I think it does. Other things that I think don't work might work better, but this is the conversation we have to be having. Um, so there's a sense that what I'm trying to do here is, well, as the subtitle of it, I'm decentering the sociology of religion, which is the, the subtitle of the Bender et al. book. That's the theme of the conference. One final question. How yeah. do you hope the book might be used by other scholars or students? I hope people will read it. Uh, <laughs> you know, you always want people to read your book. And, and in this case, 
uh, one of the reasons it takes me so long to write is I, I, I try to write for, uh, you know, I try to, I don't write, just write for specialists. I try to have the prose be readable by people who are, you know, literate, interested in things. I actually write for my father, but he's dead, so I don't actually write for him. But somebody who can understand, um, who is not a scholar, but can understand um, well-reasoned arguments. So I tell stories. And other people will have stories. And if people, what I hope is that people will understand what it is I'm trying to do, and then figure out ways that they might want to do something similar. At the end of, I think, well, there are a whole series of fellow travelers here, because I'm not the only person to do this. Raymond Connell's book, Southern Theory, is it's a fellow traveler with that. In that book, she looks at a very Western question about the nature of colonialism, but from the point of view of people who have been suffering from colonialism. Not the same question. Uh, but but parallel. Um, Mary Jo Knight's work um, on uh, feminist theory, feminist sociologies of religion is a uh, connected work. Uh, Meredith McGuire's work on lived religion is a... Th- these are things breaking down the, the sort of standard model of how religion works and looking at things through other lenses. Um, now, I've got... I'm, of course, have criticisms of all of those and things that they catch and things that they don't catch. But that doesn't matter. If people read this, appreciate the stories, uh, figure out, oh, well, how does this change how I think about what it is I'm doing and what might I do differently? That's great. And if people then say, okay, I'm going to engage with people who are really coming from a fundamentally different place. This is the ethnographer in me. You know, I said I I, I, I go, my first field work was with uh, um, a one of the new Japanese religions, where I would, had to immerse myself in a completely different way of thinking about the world. And that, I think that's kind of our duty at this point. You know, unless we want to, unless we want to ignore the fact that there's an empire around us, and I can't do that. Professor Spicker, thank you very much for your time. Sure. Thanks so much for that, Sammy, and also Professor Spickard, of course. Uh, great to hear Sammy stepping up to the mic to do some interviews for us. Um, she has been a big mover and shaker behind the scenes here at the RSP for. About a year now? Well, at least a year, yeah. yeah, again, yeah. She's yeah. written some pieces for us and I record interviews and she's our uh, sales and marketing editor and indeed set up our Patreon um, account, which um, the last time I checked now had nine um, subscribers. Hey, it might have more now. That was a couple of days ago. But uh, thank you to all of you who have subscribed. Um, we're aiming for 100. <laughs> so... Uh, you know, we're, we're nearly 10% of the way there. So if you are listening and you think that the RSP is worth a dollar, um, a month, um, why not, um, simply log on? I mean, that's, uh, less than basically anything in the West. <laughs> less think. than even one coffee. Um, none of this money is going into Chris and I's pockets. This is all going to develop the project and support people who are doing 
giving up hours of their time every week for nothing to bring you this podcast. We want to be able to support them and not to be part of the ongoing uh, problem of of people being asked to work for nothing in academia. So, you know, we really, really appreciate you doing this. It's not for our benefit. It's for this discipline in the field and academia more generally. Thanks for that, David. So you can come back next week, listeners, to hear a interview, the second in our NGO series, and it's called Beyond Faith-Based Organizations, Religion and NGOs in Comparative Perspective. So that interview is going to be asking a lot of critical questions about the, um, the particularly in the UK context, there's a real contemporary discourse on faith-based organizations and the sort of utilitarian use by the state so looking forward to that absolutely it's turning into a very very interesting series indeed um come back for the ops digest is that a tuesday these days it is indeed on a tuesday and our responses on thursday as regular um other than that chris the only thing that needs to be said is thanks for listening The Religious Studies Project is sponsored by the British Association for the Study of Religions, the North American Association for the Study of Religion, and the International Association for the History of Religions. Brought to you by Founders and Editors-in-Chief Chris Cotter and David Robertson, and Managing Editor Thomas J. Coleman III. Our features are edited by Jonathan Tuckett, and our opportunities digest by Yana Shirley. Podcast transcription by Helen Bradstock, with audio assistance from Gregory Schneider and Samuel Ward. Social media managed by Ray Radford, and sales and marketing by Sammy Bishop. Don't forget, you can support the project using our Amazon.com.co.uk and .ca links or by donating at patreon.com backslash projectrs. And you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Google+, YouTube, iTunes and other portals. <laughs>